Hey there, I'm Justin Zyduck. I'm Jim Cannon, and you're listening to The Iron Age of Comics, a critical re-evaluation of comic books from about 1985 to 2000. This week, we're going to be discussing Hellboy, specifically the four-issue miniseries from 1994 that introduced the character, the Bureau for Paranormal Research and Defense, Abe and Liz and all the rest, in a storyline entitled Seed of Destruction. This was artist Mike Mignola's first foray into creator-owned work, having banged around the big two and independence for a little over a decade, giving life to characters like Rocket Raccoon, Kirby's Fourth World, and the inevitable Batman story or two. While Mignola had strong ideas about the character Hellboy in his introductory adventure, and plotted and drew the whole thing, he had never written anything before, and turned to Iron Age stalwart John Byrne to assist with all the words. By the second published Hellboy story, Mignola would be responsible for every aspect of Hellboy's adventures, helping guide Hellboy into a miniature comic book industry, and eventually stepping back from art duties entirely to write a couple of ongoing, related series all at the same time. But that would come later. First, let's take a closer look at Seed of Destruction. Now, I think I can safely assume that you have at least seen the first Hellboy movie starring Ron Perlman, but had you ever read any of the comics before? Uh, first of all, how dare you to assume <laughs> I haven't ever <laughs> No, I mean, I mean, you're right, but like, how dare you, right? Um, no, you know, I, have, I, have read some Hel- <laughs> I have read some Hellboy. Um, my first job out of college, I worked about a block or so from the library, and on my lunch breaks or uh, actually my uh, dinner breaks because I was working newspaper man's hours, uh, I would walk over to the library and just grab something off the shelf in the graphic novel section, thinking like, oh, this will be a, like a great opportunity to fill in gaps of stuff that I've heard about, but just never had the opportunity to read before. So I did get to read a couple of Hellboy collections this way, um, but because I was reading them like right there and then on break instead of checking them out, like I was just sort of like, you know, rushing to get through them and then like to see like what I could finish up before I had to go punch back in. So it was, you know, like <laughs> yeah. more than a skim, right. But like also less than like a proper, you know, solid read through. Uh, so I did like what I read, but I also wouldn't even swear anymore, which specific stories I did read. Like, I know I read this one right? <laughs> and I'm more or less certain about some others, but you know, that does kind of defeat the purpose of filling in gaps if you can't remember it however many years later. Um, <laughs> but so, so so for the purposes of this episode, I reread A Seed of Destruction, and I picked up the first omnibus that collects a series and shorts up through 1997, so I could at least speak to the couple of stories that follow this one. And I was uh, very glad for the opportunity to take this at a more leisurely pace where I could actually appreciate it rather than just checking it off a list. So I had read my share of Mignola comics before picking up Hellboy for the first time. I never read Rocket Raccoon. That seemed really silly to me. Uh, damn it. <laughs> but I definitely read Cosmic Odyssey, which is written by Jim Starlin as a big DC heroes versus dark side story. And Mignola's quirky art style was a major selling point for that book. 
But to be entirely honest, I bought Hellboy not because of Mignola, but because of Art Adams. <laughs> Each issue of Seed of Destruction came with a backup strip by Adams called Monkey Man and O'Brien about well, it's not important. <laughs> you can probably guess guess from that that very descriptive title what it was about, but it's it, it's not germane to this discussion. Anyway, point is, I had always been a huge fan of Art Adams, but his output uh, is so slim. Like he's really more of a cover artist, <laughs> especially now, than a comic book artist. So the fact that he was doing a, a backup made it worthwhile to check out this new Mignola thing in order to get Art Adams. So I'm pretty sure I actually got issue number two first, and it took some running around the Pioneer Valley, going to various comic shops to actually find the first issue. But I do have all four. Um, And the thing is... (laughs) The main story turned out to be pretty awesome <laughs> in its own right. It's this kind of like messy combination of Lovecraft, Indiana Jones, Ben Grimm, Edgar Allan Poe, urban fantasy and horror. It all comes together in a really fun way. And I totally became a Hellboy guy. <laughs> like, it's essentially my favorite genre, monsters fighting monsters. So <laughs> I, it didn't take much to get me hooked. And unfortunately, like sometime in the mid-aughts, I fell off the wagon. But until then, I was a fairly devoted fan of Mignola and Hellboy both. I loved the movies. I read the novels and short story collections. I bought the role-playing game, although I've never actually had the opportunity to play it. <laughs> Uh, I wore the t-shirt. I, I collected the toys. I think I still have a BPRD baseball cap, but unfortunately my wife won't let me wear that in <laughs> public anymore. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I didn't read any of this stuff when it was new off the rack back in the 90s. Um, I did know about Hellboy. Like It was like extremely successful for a non-Big 2 non-image book like about as big as that you know kind of thing can get so this is by no means something that was obscure or under the radar at the time like like wizard like talked about hellboy like almost as much as they talked about you know something like x-men um i so i I, you know i do think like looking back on this now like i would have eaten this up right with my sort of like junior 40 and interest in the occult and paranormal (laughs) at the time um yeah i probably should have spent more time and money on Hellboy than some of the more middling Spider-Man comics that I read at the time. But, um, you know, that's, uh, that's what, that's what being a fan is all about. Right. (laughs) I didn't read the good stuff because I was concentrating on. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I could throw stones because I, I had abandoned Marvel and had gone after stuff like Hellboy, uh, in the mid nineties. But, um, as we've discussed in a previous podcast, I have a c- complete Rick Grayson saga. So really, <laughs> I, I, I cannot point fingers. <laughs> uh, sucks being a nerd sometimes. Anyway, um, we should probably start off our discussion with Dark Horse Comics. Yes. They were, at, at least during the Iron Age, the fourth biggest comic book company around. 
Marvel and DC had most of the market share, and behind them came Scrappy Image with all the hot artists and marketable characters. But then Dark Horse kind of brought up the rear. At least they took that position in previews, earning one of the coveted front sections of the monthly industry catalog. But Dark Horse experimented with superheroes and had superhero-adjacent titles, but for the most part, they did other things. They became an industry giant through licensing deals initially. First, they started with comics based on the Aliens film franchise, then branched out into Predator, Robocop, Terminator, and stuff like Tarzan. The crown jewel in their collection, however, was the Star Wars license. So, uh, like, not to get us too far off the track right away, right? But I do think it would be interesting sometime to take a look at one of the Dark Horse Star Wars books from the time. Like, I think Dark Empire, I think, was the was the first one. And, like, look at that as sort of like a snapshot of, like, the wilderness years for Star Wars after uh, Return of the Jedi, but before the special editions had come out and the prequels, when Star Wars was just sort of like, as like, as a movie franchise, was essentially done, right? And, like, just being kept alive by, hmm. you know... Novels and comics and, and games for like the super diehards, but the most dedicated fans. Yeah, sure. I th- I think that's certainly part of the Iron Age, too. You know, and I th- I think we we definitely need to branch out beyond the superheroes that we <laughs> spend most of our time talking about. But um, I'm also positive that everyone will 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 definitely be excited to listen to me complain about Star Wars for an hour and a half. That will be. <laughs> That's going to be good radio. I'm, I'm um, just, just going to say, if I, I look around the internet, right? And like, what's the one thing that's missing from the internet is two dudes talking about Star Wars. Yes. Two <laughs> middle-aged white guys complaining <laughs> about Star Wars. That's, well, we'll corner the market on that for sure. <laughs> <sighs> so in and around those licensed titles, Dark Horse was also a place for combo creators to hang their hats and own their own stuff. They essentially provided the same services image without requiring the artists and writers making the comics to also publish them at the same time. Dark Horse took care of that part of the business for, I'm, I'm sure, a tidy sum. Mm. Um, but because of that, they became a home for some of the biggest names in comics at the time. John Byrne and Frank Miller went to Dark Horse when they wanted to create things outside of Marvel or DC, for example. Which brings us to Mike Minola and the Legend imprint. For the sake of attribution now, I'm getting the following bits of information from an interview Mike Mignola did in 2002 for the magazine Comic Book Artist, conducted by John B. Cook and transcribed by Stephen Tice. So like I said, I was a Hellboy guy, and, and this issue just, just happened to be in my archives. <laughs> um, so stepping back slightly, according to Mike Mignola, the origins of what became Hellboy pretty much started with a Batman comic. As all things should, I say. But Mignola had worked on an issue of Batman Legends of the Dark Knight for Archie Goodman. And afterwards was encouraged to do one of them all on his own. Which he did, despite protesting that he wasn't a writer. And it came out and he was pretty happy with it. Though he did get someone else to script it for him. The issue was basically a ghost story that happened to have Batman in it. And Mignola liked that framework. He started thinking about whether he could come up with other plots to drop Batman or some other established character into, or whether he could come up with someone to specifically inhabit those stories. Meanwhile, Image had just come on the scene. Mignola was living in San Francisco and hanging out with Art Adams a lot. 
They talked about doing creator-owned stuff together and debated whether to go with Image or try Dark Horse. But it seems like the fact that Frank Miller was already a Dark Horse tipped the scales. And as much as Mignola had actually met Miller and perhaps didn't know the Image guys all that well. Yeah, I mean, he had done a fill-in issue of X-Force, actually, uh, issue 8 for Rob Liefeld. Apparently at Rob's request in 1992, but it seems to have been a bad experience. I don't know if it was a bad experience between uh, Mignola and Liefeld, but uh, the story that I have heard is that Mignola wanted to do this, right? As as odd as it might seem that like X-Force is huge at the time. So this would be like a good move for his career and really expose him to people who might not have seen his stuff before. But he also thought that he would get to do the cover. And Bob Harris, who was the editor at the time, someone we've talked about, uh, mm. not often in in positive terms, but he uh, reneged on the deal. <laughs> you no, know, yeah. really? Yeah. So yeah, he apparently reneged on the deal. If you look at the cover of X Force number eight, it's a you know Liefeld pinup kind of thing, and Mignola decided he was going to stop working for Marvel because he was uh, not happy about this. And I don't think he's, hmm. he's actually gone back since that, to to my knowledge. So I'm not I'm not sure if there was also like lingering bad feelings towards, you know, Rob Liefeld or the later image guys, but I can see that this is maybe like a possibly a, a contributing factor. I do also think that just like image would have been a bad fit, you know, for like what Mignola wanted to do. Like whatever you think of the, you know, the early image aesthetic, good or bad, if you like that or hate that, like what people expected from an image comic in 19, you know, 90 X or whatever was different than from what Dark Horse was offering, right? And like Dark Horse was, was offering sort of a more left of center choice of things like Miller's Sin City or Paul Chadwick's Concrete. So like in my line of thinking, Image was, you know, hot, right? Like quote unquote hot. And like Dark Horse was cool. Yeah, the sensibilities were very different between Image and Mignola. I think like Hellboy is certainly superhero adjacent. Like I think he fits into that general sphere like you could stand him next to batman or i don't know starman um just to yeah. pull something out of the air um and he would not look out of place he and spawn kind of exist in the same sandbox at least conceptually mm-hmm. but i think if you put him next to spawn or young blood or wildcats i think it's clear hellboy really doesn't fit into that the cross section of the genre, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So it, I think it's just as it's a better for everyone, <laughs> even though image kind of evolved into a place where Hellboy would fit in at, at certainly in the, in the early mid nineties, it was not, oh, yeah. not a good home for Hellboy or Mignola. So a bunch of artists and writer artists got together and approached dark horse these were Art Adams, Jeff Darrow, Dave Gibbons, Frank Miller, John Byrne, and Mike Mignola. These guys would initially publish their stuff under the Legend imprint at Dark Horse, which was just this Easter Island statue logo that went on all their books. But they weren't really trying to come up with a unified universe or anything the way the Image guys tried to. They mostly, but we'll get to that. The Legend imprint would fade with time and is largely just a footnote now, but it allowed Mignola to get his foot in the door, for which he was very grateful. He didn't feel like he belonged with all those other guys who, in his opinion, had really done some quote-unquote stuff. He downplayed himself as that quote, artist of Fafford and the Grey Mouser who did that one Batman, end quote. (laughs) 
He didn't have a Dark Knight Returns or Watchmen under his belt, but he did have Hellboy. Now, conceptually, the character of Hellboy came out of a sketch Mignola had done for a convention book. The first picture is just a weird monster character with two sets of horns. Importantly, one set is sawed off. And he's got wings and a tail and a little label on his belt that reads Hellboy. Mignola thought the name was funny and enjoyed drawing monsters, so he started to build his dark horse pitch around this character. The second drawing Mignola did shows a team of investigators. Hellboy is just one of them, and he's clearly that, you know, that big guy that all the teams had in the 90s. Hmm. Like, you can see Abe Sapien and a character who may be Liz also in the shot, but Hellboy's just in the background, being big and presumably red. The sketch is black and white, at least in, in the comic book artist interview. Hmm. He's got the sawed-off horns and at least one big stone fist, but otherwise doesn't look quite like the character we know. But he was getting there and pretty soon took center stage, although the team concept would remain with the book for a while. Yeah, so I'd always wondered, you know, not knowing the ins and outs like you do, where the idea for something like Hellboy comes from in the first place, you know? And it turns out that it's just sort of like the kind of thing that just falls out of your pencil, <laughs> I guess, if you're if you're an artist, <laughs> right? Because like yeah. the, the collection that I picked up also has those uh, those original sketches that, that you mentioned. And yeah, it seems like the idea just starts with like, you know, I want to draw a devil guy with sawed off horns. Like the sawed off horns seem to be like the consistent part. And only later does mm. Hellboy take on that sort of distinctively shaped, you know, face that he has. So it's it's an interesting evolution refinement that it wasn't just like I drew this guy one time and I liked it. I just like there's something in the the sawed off horns that like really like spoke to me or something as an, as an artist. I sort of think that the unfortunate legacy of, you know, the nineties image boom is that there's still sometimes the stigma in some corners of comics fandom that like writer driven comics are the, you know, the good comics, right? These are the, these are the smart comics. These are the, the comics like worth something. And like, if you let the artist call the creative shots, all you're going to get are, you know, 20 page fight scenes with, you know, cyborgs with huge guns and, you know, tough guy gritted teeth and, you know, all that stuff. Right. <laughs> but like, if you look at, you know, Mignola and Miller and Simonson and Byrne, like everybody who was like in that sort of cohort, like immediately before image, like those people had like imagination. Yeah. You got to remember too, though, that the, the legend guys also use plenty of tough guys, cyborgs and big guns. <laughs> it was kind of the style at the time. No, sure. Yeah. But, uh, I do, yeah, I just, I just, you know, I, I do think that there is like a qualitative difference between those two, you know, cohorts and stuff. And like, or like, you know, Jack Kirby, right? Like is an artist first mm. who writes and like comes up with stuff. So I think there is like just a person who is an artist comes at this from a different approach. Maybe like I, okay, maybe I'm, maybe I'm off base here. Maybe I'm talking out of my, uh, wherever there, but <laughs> I feel like, like, like a pure writer, right? Like whatever that means. But you know, if you, somebody who just writes, you know, words on the page, I feel like a writer of that kind might not have come up with Hellboy, you know, like it's such like an idiosyncratic visual rather than something that's like built around character arcs and, and themes that like as a writer, I want to explore or, you know, there's also isn't like the kind of book where it just feels like it's an elevator pitch with pictures so that they can sell it to Hollywood, you know, that, that kind of thing. I'm not going to point fingers at any, you know, Scottish people who, <laughs> are, who are not Grant Morrison. Uh. Or Alan Grant. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, but like, you know, it's so like there's that, you know, that kind of like sort of intellectualized, you know, approach to creating a comic, whereas, you know, Mignola was apparently just sort of looking for like a neat guy to to build adventures around. Like, you know, like he like said, like, <laughs> who, could, who can I plug into like whatever kind of story I want to tell? I appreciate this kind of right brain creating. Right brain is the, is, yeah. Um, so it's got echoes of like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, right? Where it's like, what do you like to draw and like find a sensibility first? And then you can build a narrative around that. Yeah, I I can see that. It's it's certainly coming at things from a different angle. There are plenty of writers who draw out their ideas first. Thinking specifically of Grant Morrison and Clive Barker here. But Hellboy definitely sounds like it came out of the artist pen first and everything else was added or refined afterwards. And that is, it's not something we we see often it's usually the the writer who cooks up some basic concepts and then gives it to the artist to sketch them out and then they collaborate from there but this is this started from a sketchbook (laughs) and we have like a 30-year legacy and three feature films (laughs) and kind of a miniature empire came out of this this one little convention sketch so yeah it's it's pretty amazing Mm -hmm. um but I think it also speaks to the strength of Mignola's artistic vision, too. Oh, yeah. As his initial legend pitched to Dark Horse, Mignola considered doing something more commercial, but eventually decided that he was probably going to have only one shot at this, so he was going to do what he wanted to do, which was Hellboy. Mignola was still not confident in his writing abilities, despite designing, plotting, and outlining the whole story. <laughs> He asked John Byrne to do the scripts for the book. According to Mignola, he thought Byrne would not be the sort of person to, quote, try to make it his book, end quote. Now, (laughs) (laughs) on the outside, that sounds dubious to me, but Mignola had worked with Byrne on projects before, and they had a good working relationship. Yeah, they'd worked on um, some Superman stories and the, uh, the world of Krypton. It's sort of a funny move. For me, right? Because I, like, you know, I am a person who thinks a lot about John Byrne. You know, certainly too much. Yeah, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> I know. And like, I don't think that like just scripting is what you would hire John Byrne for. In my head, right? Like, I don't really think of him as like a writer's writer. Like, I, I love his Fantastic Four, right? But like, it's not about the words that you know are are put down on the pit. Like, yeah. those actual like the words and the balloons. Right. And like, that's what he's doing here is contributing just the words. But maybe the idea is that like, he's an artist's writer and not a writer's writers. And like, he would be sensitive to the process. Like, especially, you know, thinking about like John Byrne and Chris Claremont had disagreements about like, which way was the story going to go? Maybe the thinking was that like, oh yeah, Byrne will, having been in the situation, he will defer to the artist and stuff, which I think is certainly the, the right move to do here. If memory serves, he also was scripting X-Men with Jim Lee doing the art after Claremont left. And that was right around this time, too. Mm -hmm. Which is also a weird decision to me, but that one almost makes more sense just because, like, here's the famous X-Men guy, right? Who? Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, I know know he was doing the Uncanny X-Men with, was it Wiles or Wils Hortatio? Sorry, I got that name wrong. I wasn't, wasn't prepared to talk about him today. But no, I, yeah, I mean, that's that relationship went sour because I think that he was getting art super last minute, the way that Claremont was from Lee. Mm. 
I think that he, or I thought, think that he thought that like, oh yeah, me and me and Mike, right? We're we're pals on Superman. He won't he won't jerk me around like that. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I I do wonder was Burn maybe a partial factor in choosing Dark Horse because like Burn didn't like the Image guys, right? I think he will still refer to Todd McFarlane as the toddler, you know, even though like this is <laughs> you know. Todd McFarlane is like a 61 year old man now. <laughs> I think the time for like yeah. playground insults has, has passed, but you know, I, I was wondering if maybe there was some influence of burn being like, you know, Hey, you don't want to get mixed up with these guys. I don't know. I'm getting this information from that, that 2002 interview and, and Mignola really only cites Miller um, as being the deciding factor. I I'm sure having a, a previous relationship with burn didn't hurt though. Hmm. So Mignola presented Hellboy to Byrne, who made a few suggestions, but otherwise just did what Mignola asked him to do. Still, Mignola played things close to his chest. He he didn't share the whole plot with Byrne, just told him various things, to which Byrne would say, yeah, that sounds fine. (laughs) Um, Apparently, Byrne kind of let Mignola do most of the work, maybe even made him do it. Largely because he seemed to believe Mignola was more than capable of it. There's a note at the back of the first issue from Byrne where he literally calls Mignola a nut for asking him to script it and assures his readers that Mike will just be writing this thing himself within four issues. And lo and behold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the collection that I'm working from has also has the, uh, the first two preview stories that Byrne also scripted. And Burns' credits on those are uh, script and emotional support on one, and the other <laughs> is along for the ride. So <laughs> this seems like a, a very uh, a friendly John Byrne. I don't know why he has this reputation of being some kind of <laughs> right, uh, whatever you want to think of John Byrne as. But yeah, well, it's one of the many facets of the fascinating comic uh, book creator that we all know and love. Um, Mignola worked pretty much Marvel style, but with the added step of adding all the dialogue himself because he wasn't actually telling Byrne what was going on. (laughs) (laughs) So Byrne primarily functioned as an editor, cleaning up what Mignola was putting down. Probably doing a little more than that, but still a very hands-off approach for the John Byrne uh, that we're all familiar with. Well, I mean, like, despite his reputation, right, which is... You know, even as even as a you know a a fan of the art, like I certainly would not say that his reputation is ill deserved. Um, I think that he can be like a very generous and you know complimentary as a as a creator, like and like and like a, like a loyal collaborator, even like really sort of sticking up for people, as you know, as he clearly did for Mike Mignoli here, saying like you you got this. I'm not going to ride your coattails here. You can you know I I I believe in you basically, right? Yeah. So like, I think that he can be like a, you know, a good dude to work with if he decides that he likes you or, or trusts you. It's just that John Byrne has decided that he doesn't like or trust very many people in hmm. in comics or seemingly in any other aspect of, of his life. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just, it, it just clearly does not take very much to get on, you know, old JB's bad side, I think. Hmm. So at the same time, Mignola was editing the script that Byrne was giving him. If you ever read an issue of Hellboy written by Mignola alone, you can see that the first miniseries is a lot wordier. It was almost even wordier than it actually is, but Mignola pruned a lot of Byrne's prose. 
Mignola is very minimalist when it comes to text boxes and exposition. I think he prefers to let the art speak for itself. The Hellboy miniseries that followed the first one read very differently, but most of the pieces were in place from the start. I think Mignola just lacked the confidence initially to really take the bull by the horns and and run with it. Thanks to John Byrne, though, he kind of had to. Yeah, I will say uh, when Mignola does take over scripting, like I think it immediately clicks, right? Like there's mm. no awkward period of adjustment or, you know, seeming hesitancy or stumbling. Like I think it gets better and like yeah. <laughs> right away. Um, so like whatever else we might want to say about John Byrne, the, the man, the myth, the legend, <laughs> he was right about this, right? Like Mignola had it in him the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let it never be said that we don't say nice things about John Byrne. I definitely um, have some nice things to say, you know, <laughs> possibly more than some, than most other people some. in 2023. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. yeah, I know. It's and it's his own fault. He's oh yeah, has <laughs> got a complicated legacy as he does. But you're right. He yeah yeah. Nobody out there needs to feel sorry for for John Byrne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So all right. So having said all that, now the actual plot to this series is pretty straightforward it's more or less the origin of hellboy the broad strokes of what should be familiar to anyone who saw the first movie the book opens during world war ii where a dark ritual performed by a mysterious wizard later obliquely revealed to be the mad monk gregory rasputin summons a little devil kid to the ruins of an old church in england in the present of 1994 the little devil kid has grown to be hellboy the world's foremost paranormal investigator. He meets with his father, Professor Trevor Throat Wobbler Mangrove, <laughs> who has just returned. Oh, I'm just kidding. Um, his 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 name his last name is is spelled Brutenholm, but we're we're assured in in a nice text box that it's pronounced Broom, which I don't know why they didn't just name him Broom, but <laughs> I guess that's just to add an extra layer of, I don't know what, because he's not like a British stuck up guy. He's like from Maryland. I think he's like, he's supposed to be Edgar Allan Poe, basically. Mm. Anyway, Trevor Broom has just returned from an expedition to the Arctic with the mysterious Cavendish family. Broom is killed by a human-sized frog monster whom Hellboy then kills, after which he dissolves into a human skeleton. Hellboy takes a team to the home of the Cavendish family, a weird House of Usher kind of place. There's a Lovecraftian monster in the basement. The Cavendish boys have been turned into frog monsters. And Rasputin is there to take control of Hellboy and finally make use of him for the reason Hellboy was initially summoned. Which is, Rasputin wants to let loose seven Lovecraftian elder gods upon the earth, and Hellboy is the key to doing that. Meanwhile... BPRD agents Abe Sapien, a fish-human hybrid, and Liz Sherman, a pyrokinetic, are bouncing around the house while Hellboy fights frog monsters and confronts Rasputin. As it turns out, Liz's pyrokinetic powers are so strong, they can substitute for Hellboy, so Rasputin decides he can do the ritual without the centerpiece. That's when Abe appears with the ghost of the Cavendish family founder and harpoons the wizard. Liz burns the Lovecraftian monster in the basement, and the heroes escape. Everyone else dies, and the house is destroyed. 
Poe-like. Rasputin appears to die, but the one thing everyone knows about Rasputin is that he's hard to kill, right? Well, that and his status is Russia's greatest love machine. But, but yes, the, the, the killing <laughs> thing comes first, and then... I don't think love was involved on any level. <laughs> um, any, anyway, that's basically it. It sounds more complicated than it is, because it's mostly four issues of Hellboy getting beat up and not understanding what's going on. <laughs> yeah. And I think the plot isn't the selling point here. Um, most first readers were probably pulled in by the art. Mignola's art is distinctive and idiosyncratic. At a time when the image guys were selling outrageously well with twisted spines, scratchy lines, and exaggerated physiques, Mignola's style was about as far from that as one could get while still being comic art. And that's what makes that X-Force issue even weirder, because like somehow Mignola for Liefeld like, was a substitution that made sense to somebody right like, <laughs> he, it's, it's a weird calculation yeah. to make <laughs> yeah i i don't know i i don't get it either well <laughs> they do both draw really tiny feet yeah tiny feet i mean there's <laughs> busy in different ways i guess so if you're not familiar with his style which i, I presume most listeners are but I, I would describe it as spare without a lot of extraneous lines or details His figures are blocky and angular. There's heavy use of shadow and darkness, almost like a comic book chiaroscuro. Yeah, there's like minimal attempts to render like gradation in terms of like, you know, shading or whatever. It's like you're either in light or it's hard black shadows, just a ton ton of black ink on the page. His art is heavily reminiscent of medieval woodcuts. Stark, I think you might call it. As few lines as possible are used to suggest a shape or figure, and then suddenly you'll get a perfectly drawn piece of pulp science technology or an Iron Maiden or something. He'll intersperse storytelling panels with panels that simply show some architectural detail or bit of design, like a gargoyle or a wolf's head or a weeping statue or something. And like the people themselves almost look like they're being chiseled out of granite or something. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Mignola is very distinctive, and there's there's literally no one who draws like him. I mean, maybe Duncan Fagredo, but I'm probably thinking of him just because he's done so much Hellboy stuff himself. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I was was sort of casting around, like, maybe Kevin O'Neill a bit. Um, Alan Moore compared Mignola to, I think he said something like, Jack Kirby meets German Expressionism, which, you know, I I, I get it, right? Um, Art, Art Adams suggested... Alex Toth, which I, you know, maybe or like Phil Hester is like maybe a slightly more or significantly more mainstream leaning contemporary. But yeah, none of these really quite, you know, there's, there is nobody who draws like Mike Mignola because he's Mike Mignola. And I'm such a big fan of Mignola's art that my interest in Hellboy waned in correlation with how far Mignola got from the drawing table. Mm-hmm. 2008 or so when i stopped collecting hellboy related comics there were like three titles going all written or co-written by mignola but none drawn by him unfortunately (laughs) so i'm going to be very truthful and honest here personally i never i never really liked his superhero stuff like his pure superhero stuff you know even though hellboy is like we talked about is basically sort of a superhero or superhero adjacent like he's not the pure superhero thing right so he did 
on these X-Men classic covers, they always seemed like a little funky to me. And like, sometimes he'll do like a Batman drawing, like, especially like as years go on and his style has become even more Mignola, like <laughs> if that's possible, like mm. he'll do Batman. It's just kind of like a, like a cute little guy in ears and like a, <laughs> like a, like a big belt, <laughs> you know, it's, a, you know, his, his Batman is often adorable these days. I, I, I find so like, I don't think that like the pure superhero thing, right. Plays to his strengths. Cause like his, his guys in tights, like the X-Men or whatever, will just sort of look chunky and, and goofy. Whereas like his guys in big coats and, and robes and stuff, like they look great. Like, I, I, I want that. Right. Yeah. His best attempt at Batman was definitely like the, the Gotham by Gaslight Elseworld story set in the 19th century with Batman pitted against Jack the Ripper. That's pretty much just Batman in a big coat with a chunky belt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, (laughs) he's fortunate, right, that he came along, you know, onto the comic scene at the time when, you know, creator-owned comics were taking off. So he wasn't trapped in, you know, trying to make his thing work for mainstream superheroes, you know. And I think that we also are lucky that this happened because, you know, how much I love superheroes. I think I've I've mentioned it a time or two on this podcast, but, you know, I... I think they were, yeah, I recall that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's... uh, that's obviously not the end all and be all. And like, it's good that some people don't necessarily fit into that little, that little narrow box, especially like how traditional I am about superhero stuff. Mm. So on the subject of art, um, I very much enjoy the coloring in this first story by Mark Chiarello. So later series in, you know, in the omnibus that I have here, will go to more of an earth toned muted color palette, but everything in here is really bold, you know, flat colors, not a lot of a blending, like Hellboy's skin is, you know, red, red, right? It's not like tomato or, you know, rust or, or, or you know, whatever. It's red like a Crayola marker. And like on a, on a blue background, especially like really pops. I think Dark Horse was just getting into the color game around this time. I, I could be wrong about that as I'm often wrong about many things. But like Dark Horse presents their anthology title which would feature the next Hellboy appearance, was still in black and white in 1994. The colors on the covers are very Silver Age, with deep reds and purples and blues. But Mignola's art is not very Silver Age at all, with the blockiness and heavy shadows. So it kind of, it does kind of, like you said, it pops. It it, it definitely draws the eye. Mm -hmm. Check this out. It's bright, but it's not... Like Carmine Infantino kind of right. stuff. It's it's very different. So this is ostensibly a horror comic, or at the very least, it uses themes and situations associated with the horror genre. The presence of the big red guy cracking wise sort of deflates any scary atmosphere, but I think there are some genuinely unsettling bits and pieces. How does this work for you? Yeah, it's great. I no, I I thought the the horror bits are effective, and I think that Hellboy being kind of funny looking and and jokey kind of throws the actual horror stuff into sharper relief. Like you sort of let your guard down, right? Because you think like, oh, you just got this this jokey, you know, average Joe guy here cracking wise, and then something really freaky happens, and you're like, oh, I f- almost forgot that we were doing <laughs> we were doing things that could be you know unsettling in here, <laughs> right? So I I guess I'm just gonna. St- 
call out a couple of, of bits that I thought were pretty cool. So, like, the, mm-hmm. the reveal of Sadu Hem, the Lovecraftian beast, when it's sleeping in the Arctic with Rasputin sitting cross-legged in front of it. Both of them are covered in a layer of dust until Broom wipes it away and Rasputin's eyes open. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> that's a really cinematic moment. And then... There's a corresponding splash page in the third issue, which reveals a, a hale and healthy Saduhem in the basement, looming over Hellboy, Rasputin, and Liz. It's also pretty cool because he's, he's just like this column of like green tentacled flesh, like the, and like the super like thick octopus tentacles. It's really creepy, <laughs> and like eyes and all sorts of weird places. It's it's really effective, and. The, the fates of the Cavendish family who have this weird history of building a house on a lake and watching it gradually sink while searching the Arctic for some ancient source of power or wisdom. And they all end up getting turned into frog monsters, which kill and then bury their mother in the lake. Yeah. There's actually the image that sticks with me the most, I think is Abe stumbles across two of these, you know, frog Cavendishes, with like, you know, the desiccated corpse of their mother and they sort of are cradling her and then look back at Abe and they sort of slowly sink into the water. Like that's, that works, right? Like, like I, yeah. I, I, I realize like this is the point where us describing pictures is not, <laughs> is not effective on a, I know. on a, on our audio medium, but open your, <laughs> you know, open, get by the omnibus, open it up to page 68 and maybe don't sleep that night. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's good stuff. And um, the ritual Rasputin conducts on that, that tiny island off the coast of Scotland, which results in Hellboy's arrival on Earth. The chanting spell he recites, which gets recapitulated later when he's explaining to Hellboy about the Agdru Jihad. That's real creepy stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, is this in, in the omnibus? There's a throwaway text bit about the Nazi commander oh, yeah. of that. Okay, so he, he like dies in a sanitarium and has bodies discovered to be infested with beetles that's just oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah the other the other image that, I, that really sticks with me is uh after hellboy shoots rasputin in the face rasputin sort of like turns back to look at him and he's just got this one perfectly circular white eye or hole wherever where he got shot and he retaliates with a word balloon that's just this this weird glyph but it somehow knocks Hellboy for a loop. Bloody wizards. <laughs> uh, so like on, on the horror front, right? Do you think that Burns dialogue lets this down at all? Cause like re- reading the, having read the next uh, few stories, you know, maybe I'm thinking about it too hard because I know that he scripts the first one and not the subsequent ones, but I feel like the minute that Mignola takes over solo, the actual words, again, the words on the page are a lot better at evoking dread you know, I hate to repeat myself. You know, I say I, I hate to repeat myself, but Manuel's <laughs> approach to scripting is similar to his art. Minimalist, with small details, creating maximum impact. Whereas Byrne is very much Bronze Age Marvel and tone and style. I much prefer Manuel's scripts, very definitely. Because mm-hmm. like Rasputin in this story is, he, you know, he is like a Bronze Age Marvel supervillain. Like he's on a bit of a rant. He's got some, yeah. you know, he's, he, I mean, he's got some spooky dignity, but like that is a thing that, you know, <laughs> that John Byrne can do for you. No problem. That sort of, thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're good at that. Right. 
but like you know he'll, he'll, do, he'll do the thing of like calling liz like oh you know the 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 female that you call elizabeth sherman or whatever like that <laughs> kind of sort of like cliche thing there but like if you read ahead to wake the devil which is in this collection he becomes a lot more you know mysterious and unknowable more like cryptic and terse but he's also vulnerable and like you know often like pathetic at at the, at the end of the story so like Mignola, yeah, uses fewer words on the page, like you say, but like he's, yeah, he suggests more with them, I think. Agreed. I, I think it's worth pointing out that Mignola wrote all the spells and incantations, which Rasputin spouts, and, and those hmm. are proper creepy. Yeah, I wondered about that because Burn is not, I mean, he can do like, you know, comic book magic or whatever, but he's, I don't know how interested he is in, he's such like a, like a you know, the ultimate, like, rationalist to the point that he's a pain in the butt about it. So I was curious, like, like all the occult stuff is not necessarily in his wheelhouse, but maybe I, maybe underestimate him, but yeah, I just think that like in the same way that Mignola, you know, in my opinion, right. Might not be a great fit for, you know, traditional capes and tights. Burn might not be a great fit for the type of horror that Mignola wants to do. Cause like, I'm, you know, burn seems to know his way around like, you know, Poe or like an English ghost story kind of thing. But like, in the world of St. August, uh, there's this ghost girl who says, I am awake, I cannot sleep, and I cannot go to heaven. I mean, that's like, that properly spooked the hell out of me, you know, <laughs> this. Even like, it was the middle of the day, and I'm still like, oh, that's a, that's an effective line. So like, yeah, I don't know if, I don't know if Byrne has that kind of line in him. Like, he seems a little too polite, maybe. Yeah, I, I'm thinking of that Superman annual where Batman and Superman fight vampires. <laughs> That's de- this is definitely not Burns' genre. No, maybe not. <laughs> um, the hero's nonchalance, as I said, sort of undercuts any genuine attempt at unease or discomfort. Hellboy is presented as this working class stiff who just happens to be bright red, and his job just happens to be fighting monsters. He's essentially Ben Grimm, the thing from the Fantastic Four, at least personality wise. I think that's the key to this book's charm. Lovecraft pastiches are a dime a dozen, but Hellboy stands out. If this isn't actually unique, it's pretty close to being so. So maybe you'd have more context for the time than I would, but were there fewer Lovecraft pastiches in general in the 90s? Because, I mean, like, obviously, like, people were doing Lovecraft pastiches, like, all the way back when Lovecraft was still alive, right? And there was the uh, Call of Cthulhu, you know, role-playing game and some movies taking influence. But I feel like it's it's in like the 2000s when Lovecraft really becomes this sort of, you know, geek brand. And that's when you get like all the literary mashups and like the Cthulhu plushies and stuff. But maybe maybe that's just when I started noticing and, and getting into that. So it's actually kind of interesting, at least to, to people like me. <laughs> Everyone else, just skip ahead about 30 seconds. Uh, when Lovecraft was alive and there was this so-called Lovecraft circle with guys like Robert E. Howard, Clark Ashton Smith, Frank Belknap Long, and so on, all writing within the same genre, they would play around and use one another's ideas, which really helped sell the concept of this stuff as an actual mythos taking shape. When Lovecraft died and August Derleth took it upon himself to become the publisher and owner of Lovecraft's legacy, he kind of locked it all down, 
even though legally no one owned any of these properties as copyrights because Lovecraft didn't bequeath them to anyone. He had no heirs, um, really. So through the 60s and 70s, you get guys like Ramsey Campbell, Ted Klein, and Brian Lumley playing in the Lovecraft sandbox, but usually at the behest of Durlith, who could be quite litigious when he felt like it. TSR, the publishers of Dungeons & Dragons, put out a book that included the Cthulhu mythos, and Derla threatened to sue them. In the next printing, the Cthulhu stuff did not appear. Now, ironically, Lovecraft had kind of fallen out of pop culture until the Call of Cthulhu RPG came out and revived interest in him and his mythos. I think that's when you start to get the most influence. Your Stuart Gordon movies, your Stephen King short stories, and so on. Sure. But only after Durla passed away did anyone think to check the legality of this stuff, and then we get an undated with Cthulhu plushies and a guest spot on South Park. <laughs> now, as a side note, back in the Usenet days, I have a distinct memory of seeing Dwayne McDuffie absolutely flummoxed when told that Cthulhu was in the public domain. He wrote an episode of the Justice League cartoon where Dr. Fate, Hawkgirl, and Solomon Grundy fight a giant monster named Ichthulu, voiced by Rob Zombie. And McDuffie was surprised when he learned he could have just used Cthulhu, which was his obvious intention. <laughs> and side note to a side note, um, but my spell check recognized Cthulhu, <laughs> but not Ichthulu. <laughs> So, good for you, Howard Phillip. You you made it into the dictionary. <laughs> um, Mignola has talked about being afraid to take all this stuff too seriously, having deliberately named his hero Hellboy, which is rather silly, instead of using, like, Absalom Demon Slayer, <laughs> which is a little too pretentious. And that is the actual, like, name he used in the interview, so I'm not <laughs> pulling that out of nowhere. Um, Hellboy functions as a kind of audience surrogate. If we're confused by the plot... So is Hellboy. He's sort of stumbling along trying to get to the bottom of this thing, but his investigation style is not Holmesian, it's more Spencerian, as in Spencer for hire. Go poke your nose where it doesn't belong and see what happens. Yeah, this, you know, possibly gets around the issue that some people have with like supernatural or occult detective stories, or even even like something like Doctor Strange, right? Where people go like, well, what? If there's magic, like, what are the rules, right? People get kind of hung up on that, and that's, you know, sort of your own personal tolerance for things. But, like, the argument there, right, is that it's, like, difficult to play fair in the way that, like, a mystery traditionally is supposed to play fair when you have magic or fantasies involved and, you know, you can make stuff up, right? But, like, by contrast, like, Hellboy has some knowledge and some tools and stuff, but mostly he just sort of has to barrel through and doesn't know a whole, I mean, he knows some stuff, but not a whole lot more than we do at any given time. Yeah, that's, I think that's true about stories with the occult and magic. But I think, like, even if Hellboy is not a wizard himself, he's still presented as a quote-unquote investigator. Mm. But he's not Batman. <laughs> he's not out there gathering clues or deducting anything. He's just poking the bad guy until the bad guy pokes back and then the punching starts. <laughs> like I, I think it's a, just another one of Mignola's little jokes. Like He, th he doesn't investigate anything. He just right. walks around until something attacks him. Like That's not investigating. That's Anyway, 
Uh, and Hellboy ends up being the most relatable character in the book, despite being six and a half feet tall and bright red, with hooves, tail, and horns, which he's sawed off to make him look like he's always got a set of goggles like up on his forehead. Yeah, those those sawed off horns and like those like perfect you know circles or whatever. That seems like to be like the X factor to the design, right? That this is what makes Hellboy look like a thing that's interesting. You know, like even before yeah. I knew the, the, even the, when Hellboy looked very differently, that's what Mignola kept coming back to was like, oh, this, this devil and he's, he's like sawed off or ground down the, the horns or whatever. Cause like, even before I knew the backstory and I just saw, you know, pictures of Hellboy in, in wizard or, or wherever, like, you know, I could immediately grasp the idea of like, oh yeah, like the horns are just sort of this attempt to be less monstrous, right? Like everything, obviously there's everything else going on with Hellboy's look and, you know, his skin and his giant stone hand and stuff. But like, yeah, this is like the one thing that he can control. And like, well, this will be his like <laughs> concession, right? To yeah. looking a little bit like he fits in with, you know, broader humanity or whatever. And, and like as relatable as his attitude is overall in this horror story, he does witness the death of his father with surprising aplomb. And I think the movie handled this with a, bit more emotional realism it's staged really awkwardly in the first issue and i i guess it shows how new mignola was at, at plotting or writing a story giving how odd it reads yeah no i would agree with that like hellboy's level of reaction is sort of more like you know this you know this here's an old buddy or like a mentor that i haven't seen in a while rather than like this is the guy who raised me as his son so it does seem sort of a little tacked on almost kind of like um like one of those episodes of star trek where like it's, yeah, you know, like the old like, friend shows up that we've yeah, like heard oh, of I, well, like, I knew him from my academy days, and it's like you, you don't have to. Do <laughs> like I, I'm interested in this story as it is. Like you don't have to just throw in like oh, I have personal stakes because I, you know, this guy was my drill instructor or whatever back in yeah, start date whatever. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the um and like so the the, the Hellboy attitude, right? The sort of working class thing. Like that's something else that I think that Mignola does a little better than Burn having read the subsequent stories, uh, you mentioned Ben Grimm, right? Who Byrne is, you know, famously good at writing, right? I would say. Um, but like Ben is kind of like a larger than life exaggerated, you know, Jimmy Durante thing. Whereas like Hellboy is more of like an actual guy you might know in real life in terms of, in terms of personality where like nobody actually knows like the, you know, like the Ben Grimm, like, oh, what a revolting development that I'm yeah. kind of thing. I mean, I, I don't at least maybe, People out there do, but like Hellboy seems like an uncle that, you know, I don't have, but I could very easily have. Um, I think it, I think the the, du- the direct correlation is the way that like Thing or Ben always reacts to, to whatever danger the, the FF is dealing with is he's very matter of fact and, and perhaps like punctures whatever pretentiousness or, or anything that's going on with a with a joke or a jab or a snide comment, and I think that like that's kind of Hellboy's approach yeah. to the supernatural as well. Mm-hmm. I think you're right; their their personalities are not exactly the same. And I just think that like Mignola creates a more consistent voice for like this specific character, whereas Byrne maybe wavers a bit between more of like a sort of like a quippy Bruce Willis action hero type and just sort of the like the professional polite adventurer type that he's sort of falls back to in Fantastic Four and like is sort of mm. his interest in Star Trek, right? Yeah. I guess like Hellboy is like less blunt, I guess, or in this uh, initial story. But maybe that also has something to do with 
Burns story using narrative captions and like, you know, the theoretically you get more insight that way. Whereas like later ones back off on that and just sort of relate or rely on actual dialogue. Um, although I don't actually know how you would script this initial story without using captions. So yeah, there's a lot of exposition that has to be laid out. So that yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's built like that. Yeah. Who these characters are not, not so much the plot, but just to know who the players are. And then once that's out of the way, then you can not do that anymore, (laughs) (laughs) which Mignola obviously does in later stories. Um, Yeah. So from elbow to fingertip, Hellboy's right hand is encased in or possibly made of this huge stone club-like glove. And while he's plenty strong, the right hand punches much harder than the left. It's kind of the like the other thing besides the horns that lets you pick him out of a lineup <laughs> mm-hmm. is like that that this big weird right hand he's got. Um, Hellboy's been on Earth for about five decades before he learns why he's on Earth. He's the key to summoning a brood of elder gods, a septuplet of horrors called the Ogdru Jihad. They're not fully seen, but. Each of them is imprisoned inside some kind of stone plinth floating in some kind of other dimensional space or something. Mm-hmm. Rasputin's plan is to set these things loose from their prison, after which they presumably will come to Earth. And this is a classic Lovecraftian plot, but of course none of the crazy cultists ever really consider what would actually happen if such monsters got free. Well, right, but that's that's what you know. That's what I always think makes the Lovecraft thing creepy is that like summoning one of these entities is usually like a purely devotional act with no kind of ulterior motive. Like even like in here, like Rasputin's not so much thinking like, oh, I will be a you know a king in the new world once Yog Sothoth or, or or whoever returns. They just like I just need Yog Sothoth to be here, right? Like I just it's. So yeah, like even like Cavendish's motivations and stuff, they're not really explained either. It's just this weird otherworldly compulsion. Yeah, and, and luckily we don't actually find out what might happen if they showed up because Abe Sapien saves the day. <laughs> Notably not <laughs> yeah. our the main character. Um yeah. but Abe's also not human. He was found in a sealed off room beneath a hospital in Washington, DC, lying on a tube labeled Ichthyo Sapiens. And dated April 14th, the day Abraham Lincoln died. Hence his first and last names. Abe is a fish man like the creature from the Black Lagoon. Now it's a little confusing because when Abe first appears in the comic, he's wearing a Joseph Kerwin style disguise of bowler hat, round sunglasses, and fake beard. But when everyone in the Cavendish house turns in for the night, Abe takes off his disguise revealing his fishy appearance and dives into the swampy lake outside to explore the grounds and look for clues. So I don't know if this is like another intentional gag or what, but like the fact that Abe has to show up in this disguise and everyone is playing coy around like, oh, he looks pale because he doesn't like traveling, right? <laughs> Meanwhile, like bright red Hellboy is like three feet to his <laughs> right and everybody's like, oh, hi, come on in. Would you like yeah. some tea? I I think it's one part joke. Like Manila, again, not taking this too seriously mm-hmm. and one part wanted to have a good reveal of abe rather than just having him like show up at the door first thing so like when he pulls <laughs> off his disguise it then dives into the water so it's like a cool mm-hmm. hero moment 
Notably, Abe doesn't really use disguises in subsequent adventures, so I think it's just this it, more an introduction to him than that he needs to do it. So Abe functions as a sidekick, I guess. He's basically Hellboy's partner, but we eventually learn he's a decorated BPRD agent in his own right. And his smooth features and, and blue screen skin contrast nicely with Hellboy's craggy face and red coloring. So they do look good standing next to one another in a panel. And like Hellboy, well, like everybody, he's in the 90s, very <laughs> Wolverine. He has mysterious origins, which will get touched upon further along in the Hellboy saga. And he's essentially a, a monster who fights monsters. But he's also pretty much just a regular guy. And just not maybe not quite as salt of the earth as Hellboy, but definitely somebody who's just like, He's not Namor or Aquaman. <laughs> yeah. Our third team member is Liz Sherman, a psychic with fire-starting abilities. While Hellboy and Abe are straight out of a Universal monster movie, Liz is more like a Stephen King character. In these four issues, however, she's relegated primarily the role of, you know, the girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's also, like, the one with a tragic backstory, right? Because her... Her powers killed like 32 people when they manifested, including her whole family. So like on a team with like a devil man and a fish monster, she is the one who I guess is the most threatening, I guess, in terms of what's actually, you know, the, 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 the red in her ledger or whatever. Yeah. She's presented as an equal member of the team with formidable pyrokinesis powers, but she's almost immediately sidelined and taken captive by Rasputin. Which means she's unconscious for most of the story and only comes to when Rasputin is wounded by Abe's harpoon. Liz's fire torches Saduhem, the Lovecraftian beastie in the basement, and if she doesn't kill it outright, the house falling in on top of it finishes the job. I do think it's kind of neat, like I alluded to earlier, that our main character, the, the person for whom the book is named, doesn't do a whole lot to resolve the situation. Abe takes down Rasputin and Liz kills the evil god monster. <laughs> Hellboy gets kicked around by by frog monsters and monologued at by Rasputin, who explains why Hellboy exists, but Hellboy ultimately is left with more questions than answers. And even Abe doesn't really save the day per se. Like he's it's implied that he's like essentially possessed in some way by the ghost of the elder Cavendish who started all this in the first place. So like our characters don't really learn much and they also have minimal agency in actually resolving the, the main problem. And like, maybe that's, you know, maybe that wouldn't be considered a satisfactory conclusion in like straight drama or even adventure fiction when you want, like, you know, the hero to overcome some sort of obstacle or whatever, but like works really well in horror. Right, because it suggests this like larger and more, you know, terrifying force at work, and you're just sort of a bystander in events almost. That's what X Files has done for how many years? Like <laughs> how many seasons? So yeah, that's an excellent point. Like even our heroes are pawns, and while we might guess at the stakes, we we don't honestly understand what's going on. We're just kind of along for the ride, along with them, um, with our heroes and. Mm -hmm. And then we come face to face with our villain, uh, who's a pretty solid one. 
So the historical Grigory Rasputin is a Russian Orthodox rural holy man, but he was also a car artist who wormed his way into the imperial court and became one of the closest confidants of Tsar Nicholas II and his wife Alexandra. They had many children, mostly daughters, and their only son was also a hemophiliac. So pro tip, uh, marry outside the family. So somehow, Rasputin was the only person who seemed able to mitigate the effects of the boy's health, and so the monarchs trusted him like they trusted no one else. For example, when Nicholas was away on the Western Front during World War I, and Alexandra was left in charge of the government, she would consult this illiterate peasant Rasputin <laughs> whenever appointing someone to a new post in the government. So, like, that's not... A bad move for some guy born on the edge of Siberia, but huh. uh, I don't think it was good for uh, anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that's a controversial stance, but I, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll just we'll stick by it. I know. I'm being wishy-washy about it, too. So <laughs> if, if prior to all-out revolution, people who could see the direction that Russia was going in tried to do something about Rasputin. They invited him to a dinner where he was poisoned stabbed, shot, and then thrown into a frozen river, or so the story goes. I believe the details of his death have been greatly exaggerated and embellished over the last century. It seems like, for example, the poison wasn't administered properly, and the knife didn't hit anything vital, and it was most likely the gunshot that actually killed him. But regardless, there's a vast legend built around Rasputin, and there are many books written about him, the Romanovs, and his role in the final days of the Russian monarchy. So you're the, the history guy here. What is the accepted, like, skeptical rationalist theory these days about Rasputin's healing powers, or whatever you want to call that? Because, like, I had always heard it surmised that it had to do with not giving the kid aspirin, Right, which helps pain, obviously, but also thins out the blood, you know, or I've also heard like a vague sort of power of positive thinking thing. Like if I convince you that you're going to get better, you might actually get better in kind of like a, you know, a psychological placebo way or something. Um, or do you think it was just like a total combination of luck that like the kid didn't die and he <laughs> takes credit for it and there's some like subsequent myth making? I don't, I don't know what the, what the, the word on the street is these days about Rasputin. I think it was mostly the aspirin thing, <laughs> but also it's just like having a kind of forceful personality and a kind of confidence bordering on megalomania and the mythology built around Rasputin, even his own lifetime didn't hurt to be sure. And Mignola uses that mythology to good effect in his evil wizard version of the character of the, of the, <laughs> the person. So like Mignola reimagined Rasputin as a Cthulhu-style cultist, some kind of evil wizard who serves ancient evil alien monsters from outside space and time. He's long-lived, if not actually immortal. And the Hellboy universe, he obviously survived his historical death and Spoilers, he survives the death he dies in this miniseries as well. Hmm. In 1944, Rasputin was working with the occult division of the Nazi hierarchy. Essentially the kind of people who hassle Anita Jones on a regular basis. <laughs> Albeit pulpified by about 50%, like we do get a shot of a cyborg ape and a floating head in a jar, for example. Hmm. Now, using Nazi resources, Rasputin led a ritual 
on a remote island off the coast of Scotland, which resulted in Hellboy materializing on the earthly plane. Not on the island as it happened, but at a ruined church many miles away in England. But because the founders of the BPRD were present at his birth, Hellboy grows up to fight evil, not serve it. Rasputin doesn't seem to care. He's willing and able to force Hellboy to do what he needs him to do. But weirdly, after waiting 50 years for this plan to come to fruition, Rasputin abandons the rebellious Hellboy and decides to make use of Liz's fire instead, which he explains as a living thing and powerful enough to fuel the ritual. So Rasputin's adaptable. He can adjust <laughs> his plans on the fly. And he seems completely unassailable until Abe harpoons him with the help of a friendly ghost. I will say, though, if I were Rasputin, right, if I'm, if I'm putting myself in his shoes, I might have tried to simply find a fire starter to begin with, right, instead of working with the Nazis to perform a complicated mystical working to summon a creature who's not even as effective in the subsequent ritual that I will need to perform in a half century's time and who will also then be, you know, a very formidable adversary who can probably beat me up. <laughs> right? I mean, like you waited 50 <laughs> years for your plan to come to fruition and just, you know, chuck it all out the window, uh, all that effort and years thrown away because you found someone else who just happens to have enough juice to power the thing. It's very capricious. <laughs> It's like, yeah. can, can I trust this Rasputin guy? I'm not sure. <laughs> you know what? Seems a little sketch. I'm going to say. Yeah, he, yeah, he doesn't have that <laughs> stick to that you, you know. He's got a lot of guts, but doesn't have the know-how. Yeah, I would say at least like you could have maybe made sure you had a few Nazis of your own in the church to pick up the creature that I'm summoning from beyond time and space. Just to, you know, rather than just have like the Americans stumble on him and wait 50 years until, until then. Like the, the movie actually like puts this in the same location and stuff, which is an interesting yeah. uh, choice. But, you know, I, I guess, I guess I'll have to concede Rasputin and his deathless masters can afford to play the long game on this, this thing. So, yeah. Well, I, that's also the conceit of Lovecraftian cosmic horror. Like nothing we do matters. Rasputin did the thing so that later he can do another thing. And as far as he's concerned, nothing that happens in the interim has any bearing on the proceedings. <laughs> Sure. So uh, so speaking of those Nazi occultists in the omnibus, uh, Mignola writes that like in addition to them being a tribute to like Captain America and Sergeant Fury comics that he had read as a kid, these kind of like ostentatious Nazi bad guys are also a tribute to the old adventure movie serials of the 40s. But he says that, you know, he thinks those are cool and neat and stuff, but he actually can't sit through them. And like, I find that relatable. Because, like, as much as I also like the idea of those old serials and I enjoy homages like this or, like, Indiana Jones or The Rocketeer, I don't actually enjoy watching those, like, on my own time. Yeah, I I agree. Um, I've tried reading classic pulp adventure stories, but they haven't aged as well as, say, Lovecraft or Robert E. Howard have. And and those haven't aged all that well at all, given their extremely (laughs) poor attitudes towards race specifically and, and other attitudes in general. But sure. at least Lovecraft and Howard were decent writers, even if they were paid by the word. Like the guys who wrote Doc Savage or The Spider were churning out a novel a month. And while that makes the prose propulsive, it gets so 
repetitive so quickly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I've I've read a couple of spider novels and they're not good. <laughs> they're really <laughs> not good. Uh, yeah, I am I'm I'm happy to to experience these things through pastiche than yeah. the source material. Uh one thing that I like in that opening sequence at the beginning is that when the, the baby Hellboys recovered by the Army Ranger unit, they take a photo of the soldiers with the baby. Like it's an arresting image. It's sort of if you haven't seen it, you can imagine it. It's like posed like a football team or like a class photo with this baby they found in the front of them. And like I feel like they, like this really sort of grounds the supernatural stuff because like if this were a true story, like that photo would exist. Like they would have they would have taken that photo, partially as evidence and documentation, but also like I feel like this is something in the American character, right? Like something weird happened. I'm gonna get a picture to prove that I was there. Yeah, a bit of psychological realism in the midst of all the spooky nonsense helps sell the spooky nonsense, I think. Mm. Which, again, is why Hellboy's reaction to Broom's death still bothers me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, like, speaking of that Army Ranger unit, there's a weird artifact at the beginning where a character named the Torch of Liberty appears. He's a sort of Captain America type, and he's he's present at the church with Trevor Broom when Hellboy appears. The Torch is actually a John Byrne character, part of the background of another book Byrne was doing for Dark Horse at the time called Danger Unlimited, which we'll may or may not get to because it was never finished. So, I don't hmm. know. Might be an interesting discussion. But Hellboy gets a cameo of his own in the first issue of Danger Unlimited. And the impression I have is that Mignola, Byrne, and Art Adams were putting together some kind of shared universe under the Legend imprint, at least initially. And this pretty much went nowhere fast, though. I think the Torch of Liberty eventually got replaced in Hellboy's continuity, if at all, by somebody named Lobster Johnson. His presence in the book is this, like I said, this weird artifact that doesn't make much sense now. And I, I actually asked, ask, is he even in the omnibus, or was he redrawn? No, he's in there. Okay. Which, I mean, I suppose this is just, you know, the the predominant thinking at the time in the 90s, right? Like... The DC universe has become more consolidated as a universe. Uh, the image universe is sort of a thing. So it's like you, you, you need a universe, right? Like yeah. Valiant shows up and it's like, well, we, obviously all these things have to connect. But the shared universe, if you know, if that is what they were attempting here, just fundamentally does not work with creator-owned stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, if, if there's like multiple creators involved, if you own everything, then, it, then it's probably okay. But like, even if you go into it with the best of intentions – it only takes like some interpersonal disagreement or one creator deciding that they just don't want to do it anymore for the stall to fall apart. And like, and then, and then you don't have to, right. Which is the, you know, part of the point of owning your work is not is being able to call your shots there. So, uh, I looked into what caused the legend imprint to fall apart. I didn't find a whole lot of, you know, just on, you know, on a Google search, right. I didn't find a whole lot of discussion of that. Like you said, it is kind of like a footnote or, you know, Wikipedia cites it as like, here is a line of Dark Horse comics and no explanation beyond that. Um, but I did look up Burn on his message board, right? A 100% reliable source of, of information. Indeed. So his perspective on this is that he came into Legend thinking that it was going to be like image done right. You know? <laughs> right? Like, like the creator own thing, but like people who are a little more on his wavelength or, or whatever you want to call that. Um, but he suggested like at some point, the core ideals of what they were doing became compromised in some way. Like they were doing 
trading cards or something, and this was you know an, an abomination to him. Or something. <laughs> and he also says, it says there was like one party who he does not name, but I think we can figure it out. Uh, who wasn't producing at the same rate that everybody else was, and you know eventually leads to like Frank Miller is still doing Sin City at Dark Horse, but then decides to stop using this you know little legend brand on on his books. Yeah, Art Adams was operating at Art Adams Speeds. His first Mucky Man O'Brien story ends on a cliffhanger. That backup in Hellboy ends on a, on a cliffhanger with a mole man-like villain attacking the city. And that sat in the ether for years until Adams picked it up again. But in the meantime, Byrne took a stab at that storyline himself in one of his books, which I always thought was a pretty weird thing to do do like it, it makes sense in the context of a marvel or dc but so much less so with creative own properties <laughs> uh burns a pretty weird guy see <laughs> 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 the least so yeah so like take his story of why legend fell apart with a grain of salt or whatever it you know at a guess probably just something mundane like different creators wanted to do different things and then burn and some of the others sort of got lured back to the big two to do stuff um, but yeah, like, like, like I was saying, like a, an actual functional shared universe requires sort of like a higher authority, like, you know, editors or a, you know, ruthless corporate overlord <laughs> controlling all these things that like, you know, ultimately considers the human creators to be talented, but replaceable. Mm. Right. Which, you know, which again is like totally antithetical to the drive to make creator owned comics in the first place. And we'll also recall that image fell apart even much more dramatically. <laughs> Yeah. So like me saying that like, you know, the, the shared universe requires non-creative control. Like I'm not saying this is a good thing. Yeah. Right. But like assuming that one cares about creators' rights even a little bit, this is the central crisis of conscience that we all have to grapple with when we're reading DC or Marvel, that like the lack of individual creator control is what just makes it function. Right. And I was going to say makes it work, but like whether you're not, you think it works, it right? It doesn't work, it, yeah. Right. But it, but it, but it functions, right? It, yeah. it keeps, you know, it, it, it continues to exist, let's say. And like every single Spider-Man story that I enjoy after 1967, which because I was not born in 1967, is all of them. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those only exist because the character didn't stop when Steve Ditko quit, right? It kept going. And like even, you know, Stan Lee, right, who gets, you know, brought into these things being sort of a controversial figure here. Like he was compensated better than most of the creators, you know, he was compensated better than Kirby, better than Ditko, but he still never actually owned or even really ultimately controlled Spider-Man, right? Like the, the business entity Marvel controlled Spider-Man. Yeah. It is this weird thing. Crisis of conscience is a good way to put it. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we, I, we just, we just got to live with it. I mean, like if you, I mean, people, some people like will write off, yeah. you know, stuff and like that's certainly a valid choice right yeah and i I certainly agree with them to some extent because i've I've seen particularly the last few decades as the tv and movie rights have have become the cart before the horse sort of thing and and the comics themselves i think have suffered in comparison or the fact that so many creators do work for hire for the big two and then take their actual passion projects to image or, or whatever. Um, I think the overall quality, and this is just my opinion, <laughs> has dropped considerably. 
across the board mm-hmm. because of factors like that. <sighs> so yeah. Um comics man. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's love them and hate them. There's no <laughs> there's no or there. Yeah. Um but segueing back to our topic of <laughs> conversation. Um and and a last note about this storyline. There's a weird moment in the fourth issue where we get a glimpse of this like sci-fi alien types observing the Agju Jihad beginning to break through their stony prisons. I don't recall, and not that I have a great memory <laughs> for things, but I I don't recall Mignola ever coming back to this detail. That doesn't mean he never did. It's pretty genre-breaking, though, I think. Like, we're in the middle of a scene with a, a wizard, a demon, a psychic, and a giant tentacle monster, and suddenly we're on a Star Trek set. And Lovecraft very famously blended science fiction and magic in his horror stories and Arthur C. Clarke will tell you any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, yada, yada. And Odin knows I love a good mashup of ideas, but without any buildup, this page is kind of jarring. And perhaps it's another huge clue that Mignola hadn't quite got a handle on what he was doing or where he was going just yet. Yeah, definitely a moment where I thought that I had missed a page or something, like turning, you know, and had to come that they were all there. Um, neat looking aliens, though. No, oh, yeah, absolutely. But, 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 yeah, but, but still. Yeah. So Hellboy was an instant hit. He would next appear in Dark Horse's anthology series, Dark Horse Presents, and then various one shots and miniseries written and drawn by Mignola. He would never commit to drawing a monthly series, so conceive the Hellboy saga as a series of minis. The BPRD would get an ongoing of its own, with art mostly by Gary Gianni, but while it was ostensibly a monthly, it was still marketed as a series of miniseries. Like you have a five-issue miniseries um, for five straight months, and then on the sixth month it would start another miniseries, <laughs> but it was still it was still coming out every month. I can it was uh, mind-boggling. But while the main BPRD book was set in the present, in the mid-aughts, another spinoff book came out starring a young Trevor Broom in the years after the Second World War. While Seed of Destruction is essentially the origin of Hellboy, Mignola did that first just to set up his character. His initial plan was just to use Hellboy like he used Batman in that Legends of the Dark Knight issue. The one-shots, anthology strips, and miniseries that followed Seed of Destruction followed that basic model. But the mythology and origins slowly started creeping in and taking over until we reached the point where Hellboy was no longer on Earth but stuck in Hell. The Agdru Jihad or something similar were loosed on Earth with just the BPRD to check them. And that was about when I lost the thread and gave up on the whole thing. It was just getting too complicated for me and, and far from what attracted me to the property in the first place. But Mignola is still doing Hellboy books, the most recent being a Hellboy in the BPRD series set in 1957 that came out uh, earlier this year. Yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of a common trajectory for something like this, where it's like, it starts with a simple idea and it has a little bit of lore behind it, like for, for flavor, right? And then like the lore sort of gradually threatens to take over. Every webcomic that I read in the, the 2000s, right? At first, it's like, here's, you know, three fun-loving college roommates, and they have a magical troll who lives in the dishwasher, right? Isn't that, <laughs> isn't that wacky, yeah. right? 
and like for gags and stuff. And then like in year five, it's all about like the saga of the dishwasher <laughs> troll and his, his, his arduous life and the, you know, the, the wife that he's estranged from, and his, <laughs> his, you know, his son who he left behind or whatever. Come yeah. Um, Hellboy made it to the silver screen in 2004 in a feature film directed by Guillermo del Toro and starring Ron Perlman as Hellboy. We also got John Hurt as Dr. Trevor Broom, Doug Jones as Ape Sapien with an uncredited David Hyde Pierce doing the voice, and Selma Blair as Liz. The story was a loose, perhaps too loose, adaptation of Seed of Destruction. Despite some interesting changes to the plot, including an entirely unnecessary romance between Hellboy and Liz, I really enjoyed the movie. Ron Perlman absolutely nailed Hellboy, and I think Del Toro was pretty much the perfect director to realize the concept in film. Yeah, I, I rewatched this for the podcast, um, and there's definitely concessions to make this, you know, an accessible Hollywood blockbuster by the rules of the time, right? Or at least the, the rules that people thought were necessary for kind of blockbuster movies at the time. So you have like the romance angle, you have this bland, you know, point of view, semi-protagonist that's not in the book. Um, but it's a, you know, it's a fun movie mostly. And, uh, and it's very, very true in spirit. I think I, I rewatched it as well because I remember loving this movie a lot. And this time I came away basically happy, but not as enthusiastic about it as I once was. I think the good, like John Hurt as Broom and the, the fact of his death weighing much more heavily upon Hellboy than in the comic, balances against having that terrible point of view character no one cares about and, and the arrested adolescence Hellboy has. Like The movie tries to justify him being called boy when I think that's just that joke. <laughs> like yeah, it's, yeah. It's, suppo- it's supposed to be dumb. Yeah, nobody was going like, hold on a second. You say hell boy, but he's clearly a hell man. Yeah, you. right, exactly. <laughs> and like the, the POV guy seems kind of like he's trying to recapture like men in black, almost like that kind of thing. But like without Will Smith and, you know, his full 90s charisma mode, <laughs> you an engaging performance on his own. Because like, yeah, that character is just, you know, I I feel bad for the actor, right? Because there's yeah. nothing going on there to to work with. Um, Again, like it's it's a fine film. Like I, I enjoyed it watching it again. But because it is like a like a closer adaptation of a specific story than say like a you know a Marvel Cinematic Universe a movie usually is, you know like I'll probably just read the comic again rather than experiencing it via the movie. Right? Yeah, I think that just that, that, that just that just my preference there or whatever. But. Yeah, I I no I understand. I think be, because of the way the movie is structured, like just even like story elements like away from the the point of view character, um, just having. Um, Rasputin and the Nazis on site when Hellboy appears and having a, a, a shootout with the, the army rangers, like that completely changes that whole setup and makes it more cinematic and exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think those kinds of deviations are fun <laughs> mm-hmm. in ways that, that um, Hellboy having a crush on Liz is not fun, <laughs> but it, it does create this kind of like alternate universe version um, that is, I think, justifies its own existence. So I, I can appreciate both, is what mm-hmm. I'm saying. I, I can read the comic or rewatch the movie and, and still be pretty happy. So the movie did well enough that a follow up was made with the same director and cast in 2008 
This time it was an original story from Del Toro involving elves and an army of automatons. I did not like this one as much. I'm not sure why. It certainly looked great, and there was lots more monsters and cool stuff. But there was something missing, I think. Maybe because it was an original story. Maybe because it leaned more heavily into the romance than the first one did. I wasn't all that crazy about the romance to begin with. I don't know. But uh, Doug Jones at least did get to do A's voice in that one. So that's a good thing. Um, I didn't see this one, but my wife's cousin was pretty young at the time. And he liked it a lot because he was allowed to say hell in context of the title. So Excellent. <laughs> I got to see Hellboy the other day. Hellboy 2, yeah. actually, the other day. And yeah. Classic. <laughs> uh, Del Toro wanted to do a third one, but he was never able to secure the funding. And as recently as 2019, uh, Ron Perlman was still game for another go, which is just a one more reason to love Ron Perlman, if you ask me. Because <laughs> the guy's like 70, I think. <laughs> and maybe shouldn't be jumping off of buildings anymore. Um, instead, that same year, 2019, we got a reboot from Millennium Media, directed by Neil Marshall and starring David Harbour as Hellboy. I have not seen this film Um so I, it's not fair for me to say uh, whether it's good or bad, but I have not heard any good things about it. Yeah, I had, you know, I haven't read much about this movie. I also haven't seen it, but it seems like people really hated this. Like, to you know, I was, I was sort of I looked up Rotten Tomatoes thinking like, oh, people might think this is, you know, I'd, maybe it was just sort of lost in the bigger superhero movie shuffle or it was, you know, being unfavorably compared to, you know, a, a Guillermo del Toro film, right? Like by visionary director and stuff. But like apparently even the, the director of this movie has has disowned it. So Oof. yeah, I don't know. I'm probably not going to watch it, but. Yeah, I'm not going to rush out and see it either. I, I in, in February of this year, it was announced that a fourth film is under development, but we'll see how that goes. <laughs> I think it should be noted that Mignola has been heavily and closely involved with all the movies so whatever their merits or whether the fans like myself are unhappy with how they've deviated from the comics they've all gotten the creator stamp of approval so <laughs> I, they're doing something right um mm -hmm. so in addition there's been animated films there's been video games um a series of novels and, and short story collections a tabletop role-playing game, toys, apparel, art books galore. The trade paperback collections have permanent space in all the bookstores. Yeah, it's a real evergreen character, you know, concept or franchise or whatever you want to call it. Uh, Spawn was way bigger in the comics arena as far as, you know, non-Big 2 90s phenomena go. But like, the overall cultural footprint of Hellboy is wider and more enduring, I think, for, you know people like my wife's young cousin at the time. <laughs> you know, and, and like as, as evidenced by the fact that like these movies keep getting made where, you know, a lot of uh, other things from this time don't like, uh, okay. Using a favorite metric of yours, mm -hmm. like this will make three separate attempts at a Hellboy movie franchise, totaling four films compared with two theatrically re released Wonder Woman. Movies. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I seriously resisted the urge to throw that in. So <laughs> thank you for bringing it up. Um, you're doing yeoman's work. Uh, I, I think that's probably it for Hellboy Seed of Destruction. I, I, I assume we'll return to this character at some point 
in in the future, but probably not for a while. But um, what did you think now that we're here on the on the other side? Um, yeah, I was really glad to have the opportunity to re-familiarize myself with the early Hellboy stories. Um, again, I think the ones immediately following this one are better on the whole, but it's already most of the way there, I think. Um, I guess what really strikes me is uh, how well-balanced Mignola gets the tone. Like, you have a demon and a Gilman and Firestarter, you know, fighting a wizard against the Lovecraft background and a dash of ghost story and all this other so there's aliens in there too, a little bit. Yeah. But, you know, and like, and like later stories will add vampires and werewolves and Frankenstein and stuff. But like, so like, depending on how you play that, you could just have this, you know, kind of wacky mashup of like, look at all the craziest stuff that's going on. And we're just throwing stuff in a blender to make awesome sauce. <laughs> but, but like, so we don't get that, but like, it also doesn't go so seriously that you lose the fun of like, let's have all these monsters fight each other. So yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's hard to do. You know, I think we see a lot that are either one or the other. And Hellboy, you know, manages this like magic tightrope walk. So I guess like I would say like if you are coming to Hellboy Fresh for the first time and if you started the first arc and you don't love it, like keep going because it gets better. I would, you know, I would, that sounds like I'm really qualifying this. I would say it gets even better, mm. right? Um, but also don't skip this if you've seen the movie and like you think, oh, it just replicates the plot. So I'll, I'll, I'll you know, be close enough. Uh, I think like, like you suggested earlier, it's more about, you know, how it happens, like the tone and the atmosphere and like, and obviously the art, mm. right? Like just, just look, you know, if you just look at this book yeah, um, rather than what happens, right? So like definitely make the time to sort of sit down with this instead of just barreling through it on your break. Like I did back in <laughs> Back at my first job, so I, I still I still love this book. Um, whatever my feelings towards the the franchise later, that this this still delights me. Uh, I can see the cracks in the seam, same as anyone, and I think Burns' presence is entirely intrusive compared to how Hellboy comics read later on. We get the setting and the characters introduced in an exciting, occasionally disturbing story. There's a few exposition dumps, but for the most part, there's a lot of showing and not much telling, which I like to see. There's action and excitement and cool monsters. Mignola's evocative art and sense of humor on full display. One of the great villains of comics getting shot in the head, harpoon torched, and then punched by a big stone fist. It has everything, really. Um, I think... Most importantly, while this is a complete story, there are also clearly so many other places to go. Like you just reading this, you you start thinking about possibilities. Mignola created a really great engine for telling stories here. So go forward with Hellboy and the BPRD or, or jump back any time in the last 50 years for flashback stories of a Hellboy punching monsters. It's, it's good stuff. <laughs> so, Justin... Next month is Christmas, the time of miracles. Hmm. It's also the end of our first year doing this here podcast. What do you think? Shall we tackle one of the big ones, you know, as a treat? Maybe, oh, I don't know. Watchmen? Whoa! We could take the whole month to do it. You know, the, f <laughs> the first six issues on the first Wednesday of December and the last half for the third Wednesday or however you want to break it down. Maybe superheroes one week and pirates the next. 
<laughs> of course, this is assuming I haven't completely burned all our goodwill in the first episode by, by picking on Alan Moore a little too much. Yeah, this will be interesting because <laughs> uh, we're, like, I think mostly simpatico on, on a lot of what we've talked about so far. Um, Watchmen, and I think I, I think I previewed this idea in the, our very first episode. Uh, we might come to blows. Over <laughs> I don't think it'll get that bad, but strong words may be exchanged. Strong, strong words. Um, I can't promise that I won't cry. <laughs> well, you know, just strong men also cry. <laughs> <laughs> strong men also, also cry. cry. <laughs> so we're gonna figure out how to talk about Watchmen, yep. right? Because it's you know, I, I don't know if you know this, but people have had some words about this in the past. No, there's been a, a, the a first of scholarship. We're gonna, we're gonna well, be the first. I, I'm pretty sure. It's, we're gonna rescue this from from obscurity. Yeah. <laughs> Zack Snyder, anyway. Yeah. So <sighs> until then, look for Iron Age of Comics on whatever social media platform you find least objectionable. Not the best one. Which one ever, whichever one you find least bad. We're on some of them. Just give us a look. And if you find us, give us a follow or reach out to us at Iron Age Comics Podcast at gmail.com. Please consider rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts. If you leave us a five-star review, we will read it out on air. We have a five-star review here by I Am 3D Homer. It's uh, titled A Great Show. Already I like this. Yeah. Uh, So it says, quote, I'm pretty picky about comic book podcasts, but this one is a slam dunk for me. The historical approach to these books is right up my alley, and I really enjoy listening to these hosts. I do not share their disinterest in modern comics, but sticking to your lane and talking specifically about what you're really interested in is a great approach for a podcast, in my opinion. I look forward to more great episodes. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. I I am not disinterested in, in modern comics, just, just as a <laughs> I, I It's just not as much fruitful discussion, I think. <laughs> I, I, I will say I am largely disinterested, but yeah. I think it's easier to do deep dives on on older stuff for whatever reason. Things that I've been thinking about already for 25 years or (laughs) or whatever. It's got more context. I don't have a lot of new thoughts (laughs) going in my head, but, but thank you. Those are very kind words. And I'm, I'm glad that you're enjoying the show and, and grateful that you took the time to, to share your opinion on it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And for the iron age of comics, I have been Justin Zyduck. I've been Jim Cannon. Good night. Have a pleasant tomorrow. Watch out for Lovecraft monsters. (laughs) Always. (laughs) 